Writing in Christianity Today, Kenneth Cancer described the explosion of the church in Korea, which is fast becoming the center for world evangelism. Cancer asked a well-known Korean pastor why he thought the Korean church had flourished so dramatically in the last 50 years. The pastor put his chin in his hand thoughtfully and did not answer for several minutes. Then he said, I think it's because we lived under severe Japanese persecution for so long. We learned we have no hope in ourselves, but only in God. And we learned to pray. We have been a suffering church and therefore a praying church. The author that I read that continues and he says, prayer is the preface to real purpose, the prologue to God's power, the prelude to personal peace and the precursor to world evangelism. When the ministry of prayer is elevated, so is every other ministry. Preaching becomes better with prayer. Witnessing becomes more effective with prayer. Government becomes more just with prayer. But if prayer is so vital, why don't we do it more often? If it's so important, why don't we do it better? Why do we grope for answers on how to pray, when to pray, and what to pray for? Are we only paying lip service to the importance of prayer? Prayer is a gift from God. It is the one gift all Christians can enjoy equally. Praying for one another is the believer's privilege because our access to God was paid for by the blood of His Son. Without the gift of God's Son, we would have no access to God. Prayer is a skill developed. When we pray effectively one time, it helps us pray more effectively the next. Have you ever thought about that, of prayer as a skill developed? I don't know that I had until I had read that article, but it makes sense to me. When I first started trying to really live for the Lord, I knew prayer was a part of it, and I wanted to pray, but I did not know how. And I did, as, as the guy said, I did grope for how to pray and when to pray and, and what to say. But now, several years later, I can honestly say I don't have those same sorts of issues anymore because, as the word it used, the terms that Kroll used, I've developed the skill of prayer. Prayer is an essential to all aspects of our spiritual life. We, had, we took a break last week, but we've been talking about meeting spiritual needs. And prayer is an essential quality in order to meet spiritual needs. So today we're going to learn about some ways to pray so that we can develop the qualities or the, the, the skill of prayer so that we can meet spiritual needs. Open your Bible to Matthew 17. Starting in verse 14, it's page 748 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew 17 and 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The title of the message this morning is praying to meet spiritual needs. 
Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we need you today. We need your spirit to come and to open our hearts to receive your word. We need your spirit to apply this to our lives. We need you to give us the spirit of supplication that we would be burdened to pray, that we would be disciplined to pray. Father, we need you today to show us the great needs of the world around us, to show us the the fact that you have all of the answers that they need, that you can work through us to accomplish what needs to be done in every life and every hurt and every need and every burden that we'll encounter all throughout our lives. Father, fill our hearts with faith in you and the ability that you have to meet the needs, to deliver people, to do what needs to be done. Let us believe that you can work in us and through us and for us to accomplish these things, God. Father, today work in each life, in each heart. And Lord, give us confidence in your word and confidence in your spirit and confidence in your power. And Lord, let us be inspired and burdened to pray for the world around us, to go out this week and do what we can to meet the spiritual needs of the people we'll encounter. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to speak your words and your ways for your glory. Let your word and your spirit work together to draw us closer to you, that we would be your people devoted to doing your will that would bring you glory in all that we say, all that we do, all that we think. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. As Jesus comes down from the the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, He is immediately met by a multitude with conflict. The conflict surrounds a dad who had a great spiritual need. His son had epilepsy, and it caused him to have seizures that fall into the fire and into the water. There were no meds, there were no hope, there was no help for the kid's seizures. And while the seizures can seem to be nothing but a physical need, we find out in verse 18 that it's because the kid was either demon-possessed or demon-oppressed. The need was both physical and spiritual. As we begin to meet the spiritual needs in our community and the world around us, many times we'll see that the physical needs people had are a reflection of the spiritual issues going on in their lives. That was certainly the case here. As we have seen in this passage, we live in a world where people have all manner of spiritual needs. Every day we encounter people who are enslaved by sin and they need the freedom that only Jesus can give. We encounter people who are deceived by the devil and they believe some sort of false spirituality or false religion. And they need the truth that is Jesus Christ. There are people that are beat down by the cares of life and they're on the verge of collapsing and giving up. And they need the rest that only Jesus Christ can give them. And like the the man in our story, the people around us, they believe that those who know Jesus can make a difference in the lives around them. That they believe that we can help them. Find the answers that they need. Now, while it's important to notice that the people around us expect that we can help, it is far more important for us to notice that Jesus expects that as well. When the disciples could not help, Jesus said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation. He was not even remotely pleased that the disciples were unable to help meet the spiritual need of this father who came. And like the disciples, it is unfortunate there are many times we cannot help the people who have spiritual needs around us. There are likely any number of reasons that could come up, but Jesus gives us two specific ones in this passage. The first in verse 20 is a lack of faith. Because of your unbelief is why they could not meet the need. As believers in Jesus Christ, you and I, we must believe that God can work in us and through us and for us to meet the needs of the world around us. We must believe that no one is beyond help, that Jesus can save and Jesus can change and Jesus can deliver. Without faith, we will never, ever be able 
to meet the spiritual needs of the world around us. But the second reason they could not meet this spiritual need is in verse 21. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. A lack of prayer is another reason we cannot meet spiritual needs of the world around us. Now, as I thought about this passage, here's a question that I've had. What are the chances that the disciples didn't pray while they tried to cast the demon out of this child? I mean, to be honest, the Bible doesn't say that they did. and It doesn't tell us much about it. We pick up after it's there. They have tried and failed. But what is the, the likelihood that as they did it, they never once thought to pray? What is the likelihood that at no point did they say, God help or God deliver or God do anything? In all honesty, in my mind, I think it is very unlikely they did not pray as they tried to cast out the demon. I do not believe the lack of prayer Jesus is talking about is the prayer that's going on in the moment of the issue. Instead, I find it far more likely that what Jesus meant is that they had not spent time in prayer before they tried to meet the spiritual needs. Think about this. This isn't the first time the disciples have had an encounter with demons. This isn't the first time the disciples have had an encounter with demons without Jesus being physically present. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends the disciples out on their first solo mission. They were to go to heal and to cast out evil spirits. Luke tells us that when they came back, they rejoiced because even the demons were subject to them. Now, the way I see it, when they were sent out all alone on the first time, they prayed often. I mean... That's what I would have done. Can you imagine what it must have been like from going to being with Jesus with you to just going out on your own? Now it's just you and the issues. What are you going to do? Me, I would have prayed constantly. As I walked, I would have prayed. As I went into the village, I would have prayed. As I got up in the morning, I would have prayed. Before I went to bed, I would have prayed. And and all of the the nerves and the the worry and the concern that might have come up in this process, I, I would have prayed. Often. And I imagine that they did as well. I imagine them praying constantly while they're on their mission. But now they're back and guess who is with them? Jesus is. Jesus in their mind is probably kind of like a safety net. If they can't do it, Jesus can. And so as they're with Jesus physically, they're probably not praying as much. I am pretty convinced that it was a lack of prayer prior to this event that led to their inability to meet the spiritual need. I'm convinced that it's not that when the guy came, they didn't pray for God to heal and for God to deliver. They had not been praying prior to this. So the key principle that I want us to think about today is that I must be prayed up to meet spiritual needs. I must be prayed up to meet spiritual needs. Now, I absolutely believe we pray as we work to meet the spiritual needs of people around us. But I'm also convinced that if we haven't prayed before that moment, we will often have the same experience as the disciples in the story. We will not have the spiritual power necessary to meet the spiritual needs. Spiritual needs require spiritual help. There is no, there is no physical help for someone who is enslaved to sin. There is no physical help for someone who is deceived by the devil. 
There is no ultimate physical help for someone that's burdened by the cares of life. In the end, these are spiritual issues. And spiritual issues require spiritual help. And spiritual help requires spiritual power. In our natural selves, we can't meet those needs. In our natural selves, we can't help and we can't fix. We need spiritual power. And spiritual power requires prayer. It requires us to tap into the source of that power, which is God, and that we tap into only through prayer. And that's important to understand, but we need to know how can we be prayed up? What can we do to be ready for the times that will surely come into our lives where there are spiritual needs? Today, I want to try to give some practical tips on how to be prayed up so that we can meet spiritual needs. First is pray As a priority. Pray as a priority. This is something that we see in the life of Jesus. When you read Jesus' life from the Gospels, you find that prayer was a huge priority in his life. Jesus prayed at his baptism. He prayed during his time of temptation. He spent an entire night praying. He prayed alone. He prayed in the morning. He prayed in the evening. He prayed before he chose his 12 disciples. Prayer was such a a priority in Jesus' life that at one point the disciples watched him pray. And when he finished, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer was a priority for Jesus. And for those of us who follow Jesus and want to be like Jesus, prayer must be a priority for us as well. This is something that's not only an example for us to follow, but I believe it's a command that we are given. Peter says that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And I like that Peter says, be be serious about your prayer life. To take our prayer life seriously, it carries with it the idea of a priority. It's not a routine that we go through. It's not an afterthought. It's not something that we do in the car on the way to work. Lord, bless me today as I go throughout this day. In other words, if I'm serious about my prayer life, it is an important part of my day. It is an important part of my life. I I make an appointment to pray. And above all else, as much as lies within me, I will do everything I can to keep it. But we're to be serious and watchful. Watchful carries with it the idea of being awake and alert as we pray. We are to be aware of what's going on in the world. Aware of the fact that there are people with spiritual needs all around us. Aware of the fact that at any point in time we may be called upon to make a difference in somebody's life. Aware of the fact that we must redeem the time for the days are evil. And that if we won't do what we can, who will? We must be aware of the fact that heaven and hell often hang in the balance. We must be aware of the fact that if Satan wins in a people's lives, he absolutely will destroy them in this life and he will damn them for all of eternity. To be serious and watchful means that we must be disciplined in our prayers. It takes discipline to make prayer a priority in our lives. I mean, have you ever said, I'm going to pray at this time every day? Pick a time, just any time. Man, it is, it is difficult to do. And, and for me, I'm not going to throw my shortcomings upon you. 
But I set my alarm to get up at a certain time. And I get up way before anybody else in my house gets up. And I get up and my phone vibrates. And so I better check it to see what's going on in the world. Did I get a text? What's going on here? I need a cup of coffee. Well, I better go brush my teeth. It's, you know, it seems to be bad form to talk to God with morning breath. I wouldn't talk to anybody else that way. Well, now I need a bite of something because my stomach is upset. And before I know it, I've been up 30 or 45 minutes and I have yet to do anything. And for me, what bothers me is I know how much prayer matters. I know I, I can feel a difference in my life when I pray consistently and when I don't. I can feel a difference in my sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, in my awareness of God's presence, in my understanding of God's Word. There is not an area of my life, my relationship with my wife, my kids, with other people. There is nowhere in my life that I do not feel and experience a difference through prayer. But knowing that, I can sit there and even come to the church and come in here to pray at this pew and look at that and think, I better go print something off. I better check the air. I better do this. I mean, it is just, it is difficult to pray consistently. It requires discipline, supreme discipline on our part to say, I'm going to pray no matter what. As much as lies within me, I'm going to do it. Here's the thing. I'm a morning person, so I pray in the morning. The fact is, when the alarm goes off, I always think that is the stupidest sound I've ever heard. I don't ever want to get up in the morning and pray. Right? But if I'm going to pray then, I'm going to have to get up and pray. I'm always, I'm always going to be tired when the alarm goes off. If I wait till the evening to pray after everyone goes to bed, guess what? I'm really tired. I'm always going to be tired at that point. If I decide to skip lunch and pray through lunch, I'm always going to be hungry at that time and think of other things that I could be doing. There is not going to be a point in your life where you can say, I'm going to pray now, where there's not going to be a pool to do something else. You'll always be tired. You'll always be hungry. There will always be interruptions. There will always be things. And what it takes is discipline to say, I'm going to get up even though I'm tired. I'm going to stay awake even though I'm tired. I'm going to pray even though I'm hungry. I'm going to do this because prayer matters. And what we often say is the most common excuse given for why we don't pray consistently is that we don't have time. We're busy people. We are. There's always something going on. If I don't get up and pray, my day doesn't stop until sometime late in the evening. And I'm sure your day doesn't either. Right? So there's always stuff. And I read a book a couple of years ago and the guy explained that when we say we don't have time to pray, that is when we need to pray the most. And he gives reasons for it. One is that God can do more than I can do. And I think we, we know this, right? I mean, think about it when we're talking about meeting spiritual needs. Is there any way that you personally can deliver someone from being enslaved to sin? There's not. Is there any way that you personally can free someone from being deceived by the devil? There is not. Is there any way that you personally can give someone the rest that Jesus Christ can give? There is not. The only person that can do that is God. We need, absolutely, we need Him to do that because He can do more than we can do. We might make someone feel better for a little while, but that's not necessarily God's rest. We might make someone feel bad, but that's not necessarily Holy Ghost conviction. We might convince someone that we're right about something, but that's not necessarily them embracing the truth. God can do far more than we can do. But not only that, God can do it better than I can do it. If I talk someone out of a false religion and into Jesus, 
the reality is someone can come along behind me and talk them back into another religion because I haven't really changed them or made a difference in their life. If I talk to someone and help them to see the severity of sin, someone else can come along behind me and tell them that sin is really not that big of a deal. If I talk to someone and make them feel better, all it takes is a phone call, a Facebook post, or a news article to take that good feeling away. Right? Whatever we can do to help, God can do better. He can do more. He can do it far better than we can do it. And so we must pray if we want God to be able to do it in us, through us, and for us. And then God can do it faster than we can do it. But when God changes people, it may take a while for the truth to break through. But once God does it, it's done. God can change someone instantly. We have people like Paul who go one day from being a persecutor to a promoter of the gospel. Right? There are people in our lives that we know that are different from one day to the next because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. God can do all the things that we cannot do. And if we want to make a difference in the spiritual needs of the people around us, we need God's help and we get God's help through prayer. But I cannot wait until the moment the issue comes up to begin praying. I must be prayed up if I want to meet spiritual needs. Secondly, pray passionately. Pray passionately. As we pray, there has to be a I'm going to call it an emotional commitment to the prayer. I mean, we, we, we must feel it in the core of our being. One reason I, I don't like leading someone in a sinner's prayer, you know, pray after me, dear Lord, dear Lord, forgive me for my sin, forgive me for my sin, is because the person doesn't necessarily feel that themselves. For me to, to get up and, and to pray in the morning, Oh, God, help me to meet spiritual needs. Guide me today. Amen. But to not really feel it, to not really feel the weight of what needs to be done, of what is going on. I'm not entirely sure those are effective prayers. I'm not sure those are the prayers that make a difference. But I do know that passionate prayers make a difference. James tells us that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, I love This passage for two reasons. The first is that it tells us that there are some prayers that avail much. In other words, they're they're powerful and effective, I think the New Living Translation says. What kind of prayers are powerful and effective? Well, it's the prayers of a righteous man. But notice the, the fervent prayer. That's a passionate prayer. Right? That is a prayer that is felt deeply in the soul, deeply in the heart. That is not going through the motions and checking off a box. That is praying, dear Lord, you know, just burdened about the issues of life. And prayers like that, they make a difference. And there's an example of that kind of a prayer in Colossians. Paul tells us about a man named Epaphras, who is one of you. He's from Colossae. He's a bondservant of Christ. And he greets you. Now, notice what he does. Laboring fervently for you in prayer. Now, laboring fervently. Man, that just doesn't seem like praying in the car on the way to work, does it? 
That doesn't seem like praying, God bless this food and God may have a good day and help those people out there. Amen, does it? Laboring, I mean, that, that means working. Working hard. Right? Fervently, passionately praying. If you have ever prayed deeply, prayed fervently, prayed where you felt it deep in your heart, deep in your soul, you know that it feels like labor. It is prayer can certainly be hard work. It can be difficult. It is a spiritual battle. And the world, the flesh, and the devil will surely fight against you as you do it. And when you labor fervently in prayer, it is difficult work. But it is the kind of prayer that avails much. That kind of prayer is the kind of prayer that makes a difference. That's the kind of prayer that God hears and God answers and God works through us to accomplish His will in the world. Second reason I like this passage is because Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now, Elijah is one of my favorite people from the Old Testament. I mean, think about the story of Elijah. He's like the only guy left serving the Lord. And Elijah prays and it stops raining for three and a half years. Elijah goes up onto a mountain and he challenges all of the prophets of Baal and all of the prophets of the garden to a contest. We'll set up an altar and we'll pray to our God and the God that answers by fire, that's God. And then, and the way that the challenge is set up is that the one who answers, the first one to answer, is really God and the winner. And then Elijah says, you guys go first. They pray and they cut themselves and they dance around and they do all of these just gyrations. And finally, Elijah says, it's my turn. He gets up there. He builds the altar. He pours water on it to show that there's no tricks involved. And he says, Lord, show that what I've done is according to your will and I am your servant. And fire falls from heaven. Consumes the water, consumes the sacrifices, consumes the wood. After that, he prays again. He prays a few times and rain comes. Now, you look at Elijah and you think, whew, that dude's awesome, right? He's like a spiritual X-man. He's a superhero with praying. And then James says he's a guy with a nature like ours. It means Elijah wasn't any different than we are. He struggled. He knew what it was to sin. He knew what it was to fail. He knew what it was to have trouble. Immediately upon the, the biggest victory he had ever had, someone threatens him and Elijah runs away and asks God to kill him. He knew what it was to be discouraged, to be overwhelmed. He was a guy just like us. He didn't have a closer connection to God than we do. He wasn't a superhero. He was just someone who believed God and who prayed earnestly. And that prayer availed much. You and I have the same access to God that Elijah had. You and I have the same God that Elijah had. And when we pray earnestly, that prayer avails much, just like it did in Elijah's day. Man, that is, that is good. That, is, that ought to be encouraging to all of us. Because if there is, if there is anything I, I wrestle with personally... It is feeling inadequate in my prayers. I go to the state meeting and there were some of the older preachers who would pray. And they prayed in like perfect King James English. 
And as they prayed, I mean, it was just, you wanted to write it down and repeat it. It sounded so good. And I think, I don't even know what half the words they just said were, but man, that sounded awesome. I wish I could pray like that. But the fact is, it's not the Christianity, it's not the, the, there's no magic in the wording. Right? There's no magic in how loud it is. There's no magic in King James language versus normal language. We pray in faith. We pray fervently. We pray earnestly. That prayer will avail much. There is no one on earth that has a deeper, closer, better access to God than you or I do. All believers have the same equal access to God. The difference in our prayer life it's not in anything like that. It is in, do we believe? Are we passionate? Are we praying earnestly? You and I, if we pray earnestly, that prayer will avail much and God will use it to equip us, to prepare us, to meet the spiritual needs of the world around us. But we, we have to do this in advance. We can't wait until the moment. We must pray, be prayed up to meet spiritual needs. And then finally... Pray specifically. I am not a fan of praying general, generic prayers if I can help it. I prefer to pray as specifically as possible. I think at times... I think generic, general prayers, if we don't know anything else, that's one thing. But I think many times our generic prayers are a way for us not to really pray passionately. What I mean, how many times have we prayed, we know someone's got something going on, and we, we even know the issue, but our prayer is, Lord, be with Bob. What does, what does that even mean? God is omnipresent. He's already with Bob. So why do we pray for God to be with Bob? That, that's... That doesn't make any sense. Why not pray for God to help Bob with the issue we know is going on and name it by name? Far too often we just pray generally, but it's not passionate when we do that way. I believe and I'm convinced that what we see in Scripture is that prayers are meant to be as specific as possible. Think about the prayers that were given in Scripture. These people prayed specifically. God Deliver us, God protect us, God guide us. Even the Lord's Prayer that I read at the beginning of the service, that is a very specific prayer. Who are we praying to? Our Father in heaven. What are we doing? We want your name to be hallowed. We want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. That's a very specific for my provision. Forgive me for my sins. That's very specific for issues in my life. Help me to forgive others. Do not lead me into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. I mean, all of that is very, very specific. And I think the example of Scripture is to pray specifically, and we need to take the time to pray specifically. And it does take more time to pray that way. So as we try to be prayed up to meet spiritual needs. Here are some specific requests to pray. Give me wisdom. The first principle we learn in our study is that people all around us have spiritual needs and they have all kinds of spiritual needs. And because 
people are different and needs are different and issues are different. There is no one way to deal with each person. Each person is unique. The situation is unique. And so we need wisdom to know how to deal with each unique situation. Let me give you an example. Just because someone has a financial need, that doesn't necessarily mean we should give them money. They may need financial counseling more than they need money. Now, not that they don't need the money, but they need to know how to budget and prioritize their spending so they don't find themselves in a financial bind next week. It may be that they need to be allowed to get into such a bind so that they have to make some changes. There's a book called Toxic Charity that in part talks about how the desire to help often creates a culture of dependency. The people we continue to bail out will always need to be bailed out so long as they know that we will come along and bail them out. But then there are people that have financial needs that really just need someone to get them over the hump and they're going to square themselves away. This isn't the the normal way they live. This is just a bad situation that's come into their lives. Different people can have the exact same need, but those needs need to be met in entirely different ways. This would be true with people who need Jesus' salvation. Evangelist Ray Comfort talks about having you give Grace to the humble, but the law to the proud. Right? The law is the Ten Commandments. Here's how you've failed, right? You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. Someone comes to you and they're like, I'm, I'm lost and I need Jesus. Can you please help me to be saved? They don't need you to run through the Ten Commandments and, and pile on the fact that they, they have sinned. At that point, they are aware that they have sinned. They need grace. Right? Think about the... The woman at the well. The woman at the well came to Jesus. Jesus didn't pile on her about her sin, did he? All he said was, hey, here's what you've done. You need me. He gave grace because she was already broken over her sin. Then there was the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was proud. He, he was already squared away. So what did Jesus do? He hit him where it hurt. Sell all that you have. Give your gifts to the poor. Come and follow me. He needed the law. People who come to us and are like, I don't know why I would need Jesus. They don't need us to say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The fact is, they can't imagine why God wouldn't love them. What they need is they need the law. They need to know that they have violated God's standards. They need to understand that all of sin and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Someone comes and is proud and puffed up. They need they need the law to humble them. They need the law to make them see their sin and their desperate need for Jesus. Someone's already aware of their need for Jesus. They need grace. They need the love of God. And it takes wisdom for us to know how to deal with each specific person. And the Bible says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For you ask like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now, without reproach, I love that verse. I had a platoon sergeant in the Army, and when I arrived at Fort Campbell, he instantly made me a team leader. And I had never been any sort of leader before, and I didn't know how to do anything. And then about two weeks after arriving, my squad leader went to Ranger School, and so I became the squad leader. No experience, no knowledge. I was as dumb as dirt about the whole deal. The only person I had to go to was my platoon sergeant. So I would go to him, and I would say, Sergeant Keeler, what do I do here? And no matter what I asked, he had one response to me. Are you stupid? Are you just trying to tick me off? <laughs> that was helpful. How do you answer a question like that? Right, so I got to where I would just be like, 
Just go. And we, I just made stuff up. Man, I, my first few months there was miserable because I had no idea. We can think that God would be like that. Lord, give me wisdom to know how to deal with the issues that may come up. And God be like, what are you, stupid? But without reproach means that's not what God does. God likes it when we come to him for wisdom. Think about when Solomon first became king. God gave him open checkbook. What do you want? You, you ask for anything and I'll give it. Solomon asked for wisdom to lead. God said, that pleases me greatly. I'll give it to you. God will give us wisdom if we ask. He, he doesn't gripe at us. He doesn't complain. It will be given. Now, ask in faith with nothing doubting. Doubting is interesting in this passage. Because it doesn't necessarily mean I pray and say, God, give me wisdom, but I don't think God will give it to me. In this particular instance, praying in faith means that when God gives me wisdom, I'm going to do it. Right? God, show me how to deal in this situation. And then whatever God shows, I'm going to do it. Not, God, show me what to do, and then I'm going to take what you say, and I'm going to compare it to what Red says, and then whichever one makes the most sense to me, that's the one that I'm going to do. God doesn't give us wisdom for consideration. He gives it to us for application. So anytime we begin to say, God, give me wisdom, show me what to do, what we have to be committed to doing, what shows faith, is that whatever, whatever God shows us, that's what we're going to do. If God says, give them money, we give them money. If God says, let them get in the bond, we get them, let them get in the bond. If God says, give them the law, we give them the law. If God says, give them grace, we give them grace. We don't rely on our wisdom. We don't rely on what we want. We do what God says. We get, we, God, give me wisdom. Secondly, let your power be at work in me, through me, and for me. If we are to meet spiritual needs, we need God's power to be at work in our lives. On our own, we are not even remotely sufficient to do what needs to be done. We need God's power. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would understand God's power. He said he he did not cease to give thanks for them, making mention of them in his prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know, which is the key phrase. That you may know what are the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, the inheritance of the saints. And this is the part we're keying in on today. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would understand the exceeding greatness of God's power toward those who believe. This is something we need today as well. We need to understand the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us. Now, the different words that Paul uses all paint some interesting pictures for us. The first time he uses power. It's the word dunamis. And it's the word that gives us our English word for dynamite or dynamo. Paul tells us that this power is exceedingly great. This means it's more power than we would ever need. It's more power than we could ever want. But it is, in other words, it is sufficient. Tomorrow and all week as we go out and we encounter people with spiritual needs, God has sufficient power. To meet those needs. God has the ability to do whatever needs to be done. 
in their lives. He can deliver them from sin. He can open their eyes to the truth. He can give them rest. God has that power to do it. And this power, Paul says, is given to those who believe. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, the power of God, the exceedingly great power of God is at work in us. It is at work through us and it is at work for us. And only believers have this. Unbelievers do not have access to the exceedingly great power of God. It is given to us in great abundance through Jesus Christ. He also says that this power is working. And it speaks of the energizing power of the Holy Spirit within us that enables us to do what needs to be done. So it's not that just God that has that God has the power and that God can put power at work in us, but that this power will enable us to do whatever needs to be done. So as you go through this week and you encounter people with great spiritual needs, whatever that need is, there is the power of God who can meet that need that will energize you to help them and deliver them. God will empower you to help someone be delivered from sin. God will empower you and me to help people see the truth of Jesus Christ. God will empower you and me so that people can find the rest of Jesus Christ and they can lay their burdens down. That power is at work in us and through us and for us, for the glory of God. And Paul uses the illustration of the resurrection of Jesus to show the great power of God. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that's at work in us. It is the power that will enable us to do whatever God wants us to do. In Ephesians 3 and 20, it tells us that the exceeding great power of God can accomplish infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. And there is no limit to what God can do. And again, in Ephesians 3.20, it says that that power is at work in us. God can work through us to do more than we could ask or imagine. More than you imagine God can do in you and through you and for you is what God can do. More than you would dare ask. You say, this is huge. There's just no way God would work for me to do that. It's nothing for God. God's power is unlimited and He has chosen to give a measure of that power to us, to work through us, to accomplish His will in the world. Make no mistake, the people you meet this week, they're enslaved by sin. God wants them delivered. It is not God's will for them to live enslaved to sin. The people we meet this week that are blinded by the devil and believing his lies about a false religion or spirituality, it is not God's will that they believe that nonsense. God wants them to know the truth of Jesus Christ. The people that we meet that are about to be crushed by the cares of life, God does not want them to be destroyed by that. He wants them to lay their burdens down, to take Jesus' yoke upon them, and to find the rest that only He can give. That is absolutely God's will. And so God will give us the power necessary to help those people in their time of need. But we should not wait until the last minute to pray for it. We should begin to pray for it now. James tells us that often we have not because we ask not. How often do we pray for God's power to be at work in us and through us and for us to to help meet spiritual needs? We pray God answers 
it, make no mistake, it is always God's will for those folks to be delivered. Pray expectantly for God to give you the power to do what needs to be done. And then finally, help me to love as Jesus loves. When we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the natural result is that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Love for God always spills over into a love for others, always. In the end, everything we do has got to be motivated by our love for God and our love for others. If it is not motivated by love, there is no eternal value whatsoever in it. Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. How many of us know the difference between somebody who talks to us that loves us and somebody who just wants to correct us? If there is someone that loves you, that you know loves you, and they want to correct you about something, aren't you more prone to listening, hearing what they have to say? But if it's someone you think just wants to prove a point, isn't it just like so much noise? Like Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 wah. Love, that's what makes the difference. If we want our words to be effective as we try to share the love of Christ, the power of Christ, the hope of Christ with people, we can't be trying to win an argument. We have to love them. But he goes on and he said, And if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that I could move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. But no matter what our spiritual gifts are, our natural capabilities are, none of that is, is it matters. None of that matters. Without love. Now, to me, I'm always amazed by this. If I had faith, I could remove mountains. To me, that'd, that'd be pretty huge, right? Had faith to understand all mysteries. All of that's huge to me. But according to the Bible, all of, that, all of those gifts and all of those abilities without love is you're nothing. Think about it. We're, we're nothing. No matter what we do, we're nothing if we don't love the people that we're involved with. And then, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor... And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. If you were to go out today and sell everything you owned and give it to the poor, but you didn't do it because you loved God and you loved people, there would be not a single eternal reward in your life. It would mean nothing to God. If you died a martyr's death, but you didn't do it because you loved God and you loved people, it would be of no value, no, no profit whatsoever. Helping people, meeting spiritual needs, it cannot be a, a to-do on our checklist. In Christianity, and this is to me one of the things that differentiates Christianity from other religions. What we do certainly matters. But why we do it matters at least as much, if not more, than what we do. All throughout the Bible, we're told that we can do the right things with the wrong motives and it not be beneficial. Old Testament Israel often made sacrifices to the Lord, but not because they loved God and wanted to serve him. And God often said of them he hated what they did. He would rather they did not make sacrifices as opposed to make them with such hypocritical motives. James says that you pray and you have not because you ask with the wrong motives. I mean, we can pray for the right things with the wrong motives, and it's, it's wrong. I mean, if I were to pray for a hundred people to be saved in church so that I would look good as a preacher and everybody would be impressed with me, 
God's not going to honor that. If your prayer for spiritual power and the ability to meet spiritual needs, some people will say, look at me, look how great I am. God's not going to honor that. that that's, not a, that's not a God-honoring request. Why? Why do we want to help people meet spiritual needs? Why do we want to see people delivered? In the end, it has to come back because I love God and I love people. Those two motivations are always God-honoring. Those two motivations are always God-glorifying. And in the end, I kind of think those are the only two motivations that are. So we need to pray. Help me to love as Jesus loves. Because Jesus loved me and he wanted me delivered. And Jesus loved you and he wanted you to deliver The people we meet this week, Jesus loves and he wants to see them delivered as well. So let us pray. Help me to love as Jesus loved. Imagine... What God could do in us, through us, and for us. If we applied all of the principles we've looked at throughout this series to our lives. And then we made these things a matter of prayer. I believe that what we've talked about, I believe it's absolutely God's will. I don't have any doubts that when I meet a person, God wants them saved. That if they're enslaved by sin, he wants them delivered. If they believe the devil's lie, he wants them to know the truth. If they're crushed by the cares of life, he wants them to have rest. I, I have no doubts about that. I have no doubts that God wants to work through you and I to accomplish this in the world around us. Our community, our community suffers under these things constantly. Each and every one of us, we know people who are enslaved by sin. We know people who believe the devil's lies and we know people who are crushed by the cares of life. God absolutely wants to help them. And God absolutely wants to deliver them. And and God absolutely wants to work through you and through me to make a difference in their lives and in our communities. So I believe God would answer these prayers. He would honor our desires. And he would enable us to do more than we could ask or imagine. So let's choose to be a people that believe. Choose to be a people who pray. And let's see what God can do in us, through us, and for us. Meeting the spiritual needs of the people in our community for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's all stand.